Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 30th, 2013, and you know what that means. There's only one day left in the month, folks. One more day left in the month, and uh, we're going to move into June. The time clock is ticking. Soon we'll be through June, and when we're through June, we're through half of 2013. Can you believe that? That we've come that far that fast Yep, it's, uh, it's, it's coming up on the midway point of the year, the height of the growing season for some of us, the, the doldrums of the growing season for us in the deep south. July and August are pretty hard on what we're doing and it kind of picks up again in September for us. Um, but the kids will be out of school and next thing you know, man, the kids will be going back to school. I'm telling you, time ticks on. You are on a sliding scale. Your life is moving towards liberty or away from liberty and only you can control that if you're doing something anything to build liberty in your life, you're moving in the direction of being more liberated. If you're not doing anything or you're just going along, you're moving in the direction of greater entanglement and enslavement and less self-reliance and independence by the system. I don't make the rules, folks. That's just how it works out. Every once in a while in the beginning of a show, I like to give you a reminder of that. Today's going to be a good show, though. We're going to have a good time. I've got a gal named Paula Radkowski on the line. I'm going to bring her on in just a minute. She is a 60-year-old semi-retired CPA living in Pennsylvania. And, uh, she, you know, you think, well, a 60-year-old lady, maybe she's been a prepper all her life, a homesteader all her life. No. Um, does a little bit of gardening, but does a lot of other really just practical, down-to-earth prepping stuff. And it's only come to this about five years ago. And you're talking about a person that basically woke up to this reality at 55 and has a unique perspective on it, especially coming from a background where her parents were Depression-era, World War II-era parents. And uh, this was a fabulous interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Uh, this is an honest-to-God true story. When I got out of the Army in uh, 1993, I was pretty much dead broke. I had a car, but uh, it broke down the day I got to Texas to my friend's house. And I didn't have the money to fix it for about a month. And then even then, I was pretty broke, so I didn't drive it any more than I had to. About a, a mile from the apartment that we shared was a Barnes & Noble bookstore with the big chairs and all. And I would go down there a lot of times during the day after I'd get done looking for a job. I'd just walk down there, and uh, I would sit back and, and go ahead and buy the expensive cup of coffee to kind of justify my day at the library experience, as I used to call it. It's part of where I gained a lot of knowledge I had. And I always had this dream of this homestead-style life, and... Um, the only magazine I found that wasn't loaded with political hippie agenda that had a libertarian flair that gave me nuts and bolts how-to was Backwoods Home. I've been reading it for that long, and to be working with Dave Duffy and John Silvera and uh, you know uh, Jackie Clay and people like Masada Yu, people that I've read for years now as a partnership with the Survival Podcast is really cool for me. If you want the source for how-to self-reliance information, how to make it on your own, Backwoods Home is a place to go. Check them out. Remember, they do offer an incentive for members of the Member Support Brigade. Make sure you check your benefits section before you subscribe if you are a member. Next up today is KnifeKits.com. You know, um, I wear this really cool knife around my neck uh, that was made for me by a custom knife maker, a guy that I'm actually going to help kind of get things rolling with going full-time very soon. Um, he's a great guy, and he makes beautiful knives, and they sell for hundreds of dollars, and they're worth every penny. 
But maybe you want something special and unique and custom, but you don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on it. Maybe you want to spend like 25 bucks. Well, you know, you can get a pretty good knife kit for 25 bucks, a few different pins and bolsters and stuff like that. And for a few dollars more, you can get a book and a DVD and you can start making your own knives from knifekits.com. Or if you're a guy like my friend Patrick and you, you are a master bladesmith, you forge your own materials and stuff like that. You can get the, Coolest, most exotic raw materials you'll ever find at Knife Kits with great pricing. If you check out all the blade forms, everybody loves this company, and they're a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. They also offer a discount for member support brigade members. So, I mean, your first knife or two, if you want to take up this little trade, which is a good trade to have, might pay for your entire membership. Check them out today at knifekits.com. also want to remind you guys about Walking to Freedom. I made a mistake yesterday. I said that the voting would soon close. The voting is closed. The voting on the naughty list, the worst states in the union to live in, is closed. All we have to do now is hash out who's going to go on the list. Um, one one place that's made the list that I almost think should come out is not a state. It's the District of Columbia. I almost don't think it belongs on the list. I think everybody knows that place is a dump. And uh, I don't think that most of the people that actually live in the district are uh, really targets for what we're trying to do anyway. But we'll we'll hash that out among ourselves. But get over to Walking to Freedom because I'm going to be busting my butt this week to to generate probably about 40 new boards. You know, Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, just keep going. I mean, I've got to make one for every state now that didn't make the uh, the naughty list. And uh, I think you know I could probably crank out the first 30 before we even decide that because. We know it's not going to be the top 20, and uh, there's, there's states that clearly are going to have their boards. But remember, walking to freedom is about people who are tired of oppression in their state, tired of being overtaxed, tired of being abused, tired of being told what they can't do, tired of having their rights trampled on, tired of watching that the idiots that are running their state are fiscally irresponsible, tired of all that crap, and they want a place that's better. Not perfect, just better. And they want a place that's the closest to what they're looking for that they can find. They don't want a place to change. They want a place to go be part of. So we need ambassadors. If you love your state, if you're in Iowa, then you love Iowa. Then get on the Iowa border once I get it set up and tell people why you love Iowa. Tell people to come out. You'll put people up for a day if you if you if you have the means to do so, or at least tell them where they can find a good place to stay. Introduce them to some friends. Look, what I'm trying to do with walking to freedom is, is explain a very simple fact to people. It's easier to make new friends and move than it is to live in oppression. That's the simplest way I can put it. But you know what? If there's already some new friends waiting for you, if there's already some people that you know you're going to get along with, that you can hang out with, that you can talk to, before you even pack up the van, doesn't it get easier? And don't you want like-minded people moving to your state to help make your state an example for the rest of the republic? That's what Walking to Freedom is all about. Get over to it today, Walking to Freedom. Com. Also, check out TSP Mint. I'm going a little longer on the stuff today, but I, I do want you guys to know um, about the Sentinel Proof launch. Uh, the first 1,500 come with this amazing display case, and you can only buy five of them. So if you've already bought your five, I'm sorry, you're done. But if you haven't bought any, go buy one or five and get this case with this proof. The proof is gorgeous. This is not the ant proof we only did 1,500 of when we, we launched that coin, or 1,000 we did of those. We're doing uh, 1,500 of these. This is the 
the true Sentinel design with the Sentinel front and the weapons reverse. Uh, 271 have been purchased, so there's plenty left available. It is selling at a premium of 30 bucks a coin. I know that's not right for everybody, but if you want something really special, really sharp, something that you can make part of your silver collection that tells a story and does so with amazing graphics, check out the Sentinel Proof. And if you have special people in your life that you would like to give this message to in a very special, very beautiful presentation way, um, this might be something to squirrel away for even Christmas gifts right now because it'll take a while to sell 1,500 of these at the premium they're selling at, but when they're gone, they're gone. They're not coming again. They're done. I don't mean the coins. I mean the coins in the cases the way that they are presented this way. Um, I don't know how many proofs in total will sell. We may not sell many more than the 1,500. I'm really not sure. I have to talk to Rob about that. Uh, but I'll tell you what, these are going to be beautiful. And uh, I know Christmas is a long way off, but I can tell you that they won't be here at Christmas time. So consider that. With uh, that wrapped up, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get great discounts. How about silver for a dollar ninety nine an ounce over spot on custom men and medallions from TSP Mint? That's what members pay on quantities of five or more. So yeah, we just talked about a thirty dollar coin, but the regular, uh, you know, about or, uh, brilliant uncirculated sentinels. They're at buck ninety nine over spot on a daily basis. That kicks everybody's ass. And quantities as low as five. I mean, from Appmex, sure you can get equivalent pricing or maybe a little bit better if you start buying quantities of like fifty. But quantities of five, we're the only place that you can do this and get these. And again, custom minted, not generic, but custom minted, cool medallions for a buck ninety nine over spot. That's just one benefit of being a member of the support brigade. Hey, you don't want my silver, JM Bullion? How about? Uh, $5 off orders over $300, $10 off orders over 1000 Doesn't sound like a lot, but man, the margins are thin in silver. That's just the silver stuff. How about a free lifetime membership uh, to Safe Castle's Discount Buyers Club, valued at $49. It pays for your whole membership. I mean, the discounts are awesome. And you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Those of you who have made service part of your life, in the military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, uh, uh, first responders like that, uh, anybody in that group, if you email me with service discount in the subject line and tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, if you're prior service, if you did it in the past, I'll send you a discount code before you join. you got to do this. It'll save you even more money and make it an even better deal. And it's a great discount. I usually don't say it on the air, but just so folks know, it's a 25% discount offered to uh, to service members and uh, those who have served our nation either at home or abroad as first responders, law enforcement, military, and through the Peace Corps. With that wrapped up, I am ready to introduce our special guest. Again, her name is Paula Radkowski, and uh, she's joining us today to talk about prepping from a women's point of view. And uh, she's the third batter up, so to speak. So this is Woman of Prepping Series, Episode 3 on the Survival Podcast. And with that, hey, Paula, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Jack. Well, well thanks for being here. You're uh, uh, number three in our Women of Prepping Series. And, um, you know, what I always ask a guest, you know, initially at least, is uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, not so much as a prepper, just you know who you are and your your you know your educational background or your you know your your station in life today i mean just who is paula uh well i was born in oklahoma both of my parents were born and raised in oklahoma um i uh, am a middle class 
person, had a, and probably a very average middle-class suburban type upbringing, and was part of the, I was born in 1953, so part of the baby boomer generation who was kind of accustomed to just having things available, and um, I wouldn't say spoiled rotten, but not really any hardships either. And I uh, went through, you know, the typical late 1960s. I was in high school. I was uh, probably pretty typical for the time, rebellious and um, maybe I should say somewhat of a jerk now. I would say that. (laughs) (laughs) Who's not when they're like 16, though? I mean, to be fair. But I grew up, I... uh, Went to college, graduated. I my father said he would only pay for my he paid for half of my college and I paid for half, so I had no student debt. And I should say it was my father and mother, but um, I had uh, he would not contribute unless I went into a practical field. So I be uh, majored in business administration with a minor in accounting and a minor in sociology. Just for the fun of it, really. And so your dad I, was okay with that, but we weren't going to have a major in sociology and basket weaving. He wanted some nuts and bolts component there. Yes. He wanted me to have the credentials and the skills to be able to support myself, no matter, you know, if, if something should occur. And, and I, it's, it was a good choice. I've worked in the accounting field for many years. I, um, married when I was 24 and my husband and I are we're kind of semi-retired now we both came out of um you know office type positions okay and so what takes a person so I'm doing the math and saying you're 60 ish based on your date of birth um 60 in a month okay so we got a 60 year old female born and raised suburbanite uh CPA college education um, out of the baby boom generation, who now would call herself a prepper. So what brought you along from your middle class, you know, just kind of bopping along worldview to saying, hey, maybe we need to be a little bit more prepared than we are? Well, I think my parents' heritage actually sowed a foundation, which I didn't pay any attention to for a long time. My parents were both raised during the Depression, my father was born and raised on a farm, and although they were extremely poor, he always had food. They they raised as much of their own food as possible. They raised a pig and slaughtered it every fall. They had chickens and eggs. They had one dairy cow. Um, my mother, on the other hand, lived in Oklahoma City, and... She uh, was in a single mother household, and her life was quite different. She was extremely impoverished, and because they really didn't have the the skills to take care of themselves, uh, she tells me she spent a lot of her childhood eating um, baking powder biscuits and bacon grease gravy which would be quite a difference from what you could have on a farm where you have fresh produce, tomato, okra, corn, melons. And I um, 
so my father was very, uh, both of my parents wanted to better themselves. And the Depression made them very conservative financially. And my father had a real self-sufficiency streak. He could fix anything. He was very good at fixing things mechanically, carpentry, bricklaying, um, skills that he had picked up on the farm. So I think this was kind of latently in me. But what really happened to me was when the economy started to go bad in 2008. I actually am that late in coming to a prepping lifestyle. Um, so would you I, say that that's about how long you, you're looking at about four or five years of, of kind of a focused somewhat of an effort on this then? Yes. I would say probably I started in 2009. Okay. Um, my mom lived with me for 18 months. She had terminal lung cancer, and I was taking care of her and the financial world was kind of falling apart and I wasn't really paying as good attention as I should have been. Um, and I have been probably for 30 years an avid talk radio listener to the, the typical talk radio people. And I think it was probably Glenn Beck that started me thinking in a prepping way. But the problem with Glenn Beck is he would scare me to death, but he never provided any solution. Um, and I, I wish I could remember how. Somewhere in listening to talk radio, someone mentioned you. Okay. And I decided to to look you up online and um I have an iPod. I like to continually learn and I listen to certain nutritional um podcasts to try to just to keep learning all the time. And so I started listening to your podcast. And at this point, I've probably listened to about two years' worth because when I subscribed, I was able to go back and pick up about six months' worth, just load them right onto my iPod immediately. And you were what I was looking for because you <laughs> gave me the specifics of how to begin to take what I was seeing happening and that and the fears that I was having and how to cope with them and to prepare in a way that would be good for me and my family. And, I mean, so here I am, 20 years your junior, this guy just freaking going nuts on some of this stuff and all. But it, you're still able to relate to because I always find that interesting, you know, I – I, I find it interesting when people that have been around longer than me are able to take this information and utilize it and maybe cut through some of the, I guess, entertainment value that I throw in once in a while and still, you know, take the brass tacks out of it. Well, I think that experience is more important. And I think you've had a lot of 
the, your various experiences in the service, the way you grew up, different things with your, your grandparents being very self-sufficient. And I think that helped. You can have, you know, you can be 70 years old and have led a sheltered life and not really have much to contribute to other people. But, um, no, I really, I, I think that what I would tell people is to listen to your podcasts and use it as a general guide and take the information and personalize it for themselves, which means discarding some of it. If, sure. um, you know, I'm not not because I don't agree with it, but because not all of it would be suitable for me to do. Correct. I, I completely agree with that. I tell people all the time, you know, um, the martial artist Bruce Lee had a, a theory about martial arts, take what you want and leave the rest behind. And I think that that's what I would advise people, not just from my program, but in any program, to take only that which is beneficial to you. And you, then you may find sometimes a little bit of the other stuff creeping back in and helping you out down the road. I know I do from sources of information I get that I thought, well, that doesn't really matter, but it sticks in the head. And all of a sudden it comes back around, just like you were talking about with the experiences of your parents that you really didn't take in, but that, that planted a seed that was there that you only waited for the right time to kind of germinate. Yes, and I think one of the... Um one of the negative aspects of my upbringing was that when I was growing up, um, you, you of course, wanted to be middle class, but there was almost an attitude that self-sufficiency meant you were unsuccessful. Yeah. If you yeah. had to scrape and provide, if you were saving junk mail to use as scrap paper, which I do all the time now, you were you were not successful. There was something a little wrong about you. And I think I've I've discarded a lot of those um, attitudes which were maybe put in my mind that that shouldn't last. That's my yeah. husband coming upstairs. It's, it's no big can, deal. Okay. Background noise is totally. This is guerrilla podcasting. Background noise is totally acceptable. I had the phone go off on today's show, so um, yeah. And I, I think that there there was definitely that, like in my upbringing, on one side of the grandparents that you know both of my grandparents were part of the World War II generation, is it probably you know in the Depression era as, as your parents were, and on one side. You know, my grandfather on one side came out. He was very much into kind of the administrative world and lived that middle-class lifestyle, four kids. And then my grandparents on the other side basically were living in 1980, probably very close to the same way that they were in 1940. They just maybe had a few more conveniences. And I, I saw that contrast. And as a kid, you would think that you would gravitate towards the the suburbanite, all things taken care of, but I actually gravitated toward these hard skills that my grandparents had because I thought it was neat that they knew how to do these things. And that that is a real plus. Unfortunately, um, I didn't take advantage of those kinds of things. But uh, my father, when he retired, they had bought a place that had been a farm at one time 
in Pennsylvania. They had 26 acres. It wasn't a working farm. It did have a small orchard. But he went back to his roots. He wanted a very large vegetable garden, and he had started um, in the 19, late 1970s. He became very concerned about the economy and the way things were going, and he began buying gold and silver. And he used to say um, we would get together my husband and I and my parents, and he would say to us that it was just a matter of time until we had a financial collapse, that things could not continue on as they were, and that he was setting aside some coins for that time, and he used to tell us, when things get really bad, don't worry, you and Alex can always come here to the farm um, we can get a couple animals, and we won't have a fancy lifestyle, but we will survive. So it's interesting to me how he was thinking like that in the early 1980s. And, and, uh, you know, I think we, we came real close to a precipice back then, and then we had Reagan's Morning in America, and we went through another uh, cycle of, of prosperity and then we just went through this misery of 2008, 2009 that was probably, other than the Great Depression, the worst time financially in this nation. But we had so much peripheral crap going on that I think people didn't realize how bad it got. For like The people that it didn't hit hard really don't know how bad it got. They really don't know how hard it was. They, they There's a lot of people that live in... Areas like Dallas and Houston that were fairly well insulated or even areas like, you know, Jacksonville, Florida or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that maybe they hit them a little bit. But I think many people don't understand how a lot of little towns in middle America pretty much dried up and blew away. I know I didn't get it till a year ago when we were driving back from Florida to Arkansas and we went through parts of rural Arkansas and Louisiana then there were some several different areas that had really beautiful lakes, and you could tell they used to be kind of like vacation resort towns, yeah. but the towns had the windows boarded up. Wow. And it was like, and you could tell that like this used to be a place that people would hook up the bass boat and drive two hours down to or whatever, and that the towns were doing very well just five years ago. And they were pretty much gone. And there were big houses around the lakes, but the towns themselves just weren't I mean the only way you could say it is they they looked like when you watch old movies and you see like the places around around Route 66 that dried up after Eisenhower put the interstate in yeah that's what they were made you think of you know trees growing through well not quite that far yet but you could tell that was what was next is sooner or later there'd be trees coming through the roads well, and it, I it, that happened right now and I don't think people know how close we came and I think that a lot of people between you know the seventies and and then the the recession, even with the bust of the bubble in two thousand, that really wasn't that bad. But in in that whole period of time from about nineteen seventy nine, as we came out of that recession, all the way up until two thousand eight, just went back to sleep and and went like, well, this can't get that bad again. And and my concern is what happens the next time around, and especially what happens for people who are banking on Social Security the next time around. Exactly. Even if the money's there, what will it buy you? That's the real question. 
Well, that's it. That's why we ha- I think we have to prepare. To me, it's I like the way that you frame things where it's not a matter of preparing for something that may never happen or something um say on the crazy side like an asteroid hitting the earth. It's a matter of preparing for what is most likely to happen that will negatively impact my life. Absolutely. And I have found that very helpful. I have tried to, and I'm hoping that um, maybe some people that listen to this or ladies will see that there's a lot you can do as just an average person who... um, you know, can't repair a truck or anything like sure. you can. Sure. But that you, there are many, many things that you can do. And um, I have tried to prioritize in two different ways. One is to, I like to write lists. It's helpful to me. And then when I accomplish things, I like to cross them out. That's just, but to have a list, uh, to kind of daydream and make a list of, okay, what would most likely happen in my life, in my community? And then a second list to go with it, okay, those most likely things, what would be the most helpful for me during those periods of time? And kind of condense down a list where I could start, and that's what I did, where I could start working on small things. I also have a third list, which is my daydream list. I have never had much of a green thumb. I've never been very successful at gardening. Um, I have lupus, so I can't be out in the sun for long periods of time. But I would like to be more self-sufficient in that way. But I'm not going to, if, in fact, I started a small garden last year. It's very tiny. I have one raised bed that's four feet by eight feet. And um, that went well. And if it continues to go well, I'm just going to add more beds that are manageable. Take it a little bit at a time. That way I don't get overwhelmed by looking and saying, there's no way I can do all these things. I don't have to. All I have to do is the first thing on my list. That's awesome. And I think that the, the, the concept of, you know, you're, you're probably never going to have the agricultural production that I'm trying to put in here, even though, God, I miss the climate of Pennsylvania. I mean, it's it's an incredible climate for it. But... You know, you put that one bed in, so you have one bed to manage. It's not that big a deal. And eventually, maybe you put two in. And it's surprising how much productivity, when you're just trying to produce maybe some tomatoes, some peppers, some herbs, and things like that can come out of those small spaces. Um, and and that kind of just leads you forward as to, okay, this is as much of this as I'm wanting to do for now. So now I'll take my list and I'll go do something else that's maybe less energy-intensive. Um but it's good to hear that you've taken a step in that direction. But along this conversation, one thing I'm wondering about is the husband. So typically, families, when one becomes a prepper, there's two things that have been going on. The, the, the spouse goes, 
thank you, finally, because they were already there, or they go, what the heck's going on? So was your husband kind of on board with this initially, or did he come over across with you, or is he still on the other side? How did that all play out? Okay, he was not on board with me, and I would tell him different things that were going on um, financially. I think it was helpful that I had, I had, even though um, I worked in accounting, I have always loved financial planning. I never pursued that field, probably because I'm not a good enough liar. But <laughs> I just had to get that in there. But I have always found it fascinating. I tend to think in terms of numbers and what, um, how things can grow, can be manipulated financially, et cetera. So I would talk to him about things like that, and he He's a very nice person, and I would kind of get a, a metaphorical pat on the head and told, aren't you cute to be so worried about this? You know, he wouldn't literally say that, but he um, he tolerated me, and so I just started prepping. I um, We have a four-bedroom house. And I put a lot of thought into where I wanted storage. I didn't want it in the basement. I don't, I just don't like basements. I don't like that smell that they get. Um, I didn't want storage in the attic because of the heat, the temperature changes. So I have two bedrooms on my first floor and we, I took the small bedroom there and I simply put, um, storage shelves in the entire room is storage it's a small room it's inside it's there are rooms on both sides of it so it's you don't have to heat it or cool it and it stays relatively temperature controlled and i basically did what you had suggested i had always kept a list so that when we ran out of something i had a spare on hand already I could use up the last jar of peanut butter. We have one more jar. So what I did was I just started buying two instead of one. And then if things would go on sale, sometimes I would buy four or six of something. And I have my little room organized where like things are together, cleaning supplies, foodstuffs. I use an indelible marker and I date everything the day that I purchased it and I put the price I paid for it and I make a little notation about whether it was on sale or I used a coupon because that helps me in price comparison down the road. Um, What really changed my husband um, was And he had humored me, by the way, in many, many ways. I had even started, maybe you've never heard of something. I've never heard you mention this, but it could have been that I just didn't hear it. But prepping with appliances, where I told my husband, I said, you know, our appliances, money is going to be worth less and less. And appliances have value. So we have a 10-year-old freezer. Let's get a second freezer now. We have the money. Let's let's invest in that. I know it's in a sense it's not an investment because it 
it won't appreciate. But the well, cost call of the food, I would call it an investment because it enables you to store food. Right. right. And the cost of the freezer, it will be more valuable to us. What the freezer we bought in 10 years from now, what that money will buy will be very little. Correct. But we did, uh, I did the same thing with my refrigerator. We had a 13-year-old refrigerator, and I kind of used the same rationale with my husband, not that we're prepping, but that's how I was thinking. But the... um this could go bad at any time, and then we'd want to get a refrigerator immediately. Let's start shopping and pricing and get a good deal on a refrigerator now. Best deal, most efficient appliance that we can get our hands on, longest lasting thing with right. today's money versus tomorrow's money, and do it, you know, if we don't see anything that's on sale or incentivized right today, we don't have to buy it, but we will find it in the next month or two. And we won't end up in a situation where everything's going to spoil if we don't buy something now and drag it home. Yeah. And since I'm, um, I eat like you do, but I have for a lot longer. I've I've been paleo for 16 years. Awesome. And it completely changed my health. That was uh, with the lupus. I had a lot of health problems. I couldn't. The only answer the medical community had for me was drugs with some pretty scary side effects. So I tried to take, I, I decided that it was my body, my science experiment. And I began experimenting with eating in different ways. I totally cut out grains and processed foods. And over a period of time came to paleo. The internet was very helpful because I could find like-minded people and information. Um, but having the extra refrigerator and freezer helped me because I would like to try to stay as paleo as possible. So over a period of time, you learn when things go on sale. I have one of my freezers, the entire freezer door is nuts, various nuts. They're in the freezer. They keep for years in the freezer. <laughs> Um, they don't go rancid, and uh, I do use nuts and eat nuts, but I, I've often thought if I really, if things really got bad, for me personally, I'd rather eat nuts than rice. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would do. I, you know, I have made concessions that I may not be able to remain paleo. I bought organic cornmeal, and I also have that in the freezer. So that it will keep. And I have, um, I like pinto beans. I have dried pinto beans on hand, and I I could um, eat. Uh, you know, we called it brown beans, brown beans and cornbread. When I was a child, would do me just fine. Um, but what I don't too much of that now, but I don't frown when I'm eating it. Cornbread and beans is pretty good stuff. Yeah, I don't eat it now either, except maybe once a year, you know, I'll say, oh, yeah. I just got to have it. Yeah. But it would be a lot healthier in, for me than eating, like, white flour pasta or something like that. I'm Correct. very reactive to wheat. You know, and when we made the switch, basically I made the switch to paleo before Dorothy did, and she, I'd say she's 70% there, and I'm about 95% there. 
uh, on, on most things in my life day to day. Um, she said, well, now what are we going to do with all of the wheat berries, all of the, you know, the, the stuff that we have that's in long-term storage sealed in buckets and all. And I said, we're going to keep it. And she yeah. said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, we never have to eat it. We'll eat it. But, but I guarantee you that many of the people that we know that sort of know what we do and with what I do professionally, pretty much all the people I know closely know what we do. Um, some of them may need something at some point. And they can eat rice and corn nuts, That's and right. and I'll eat eggs and chickens, <laughs> and and it, I I would rather have low cost long term storables like that to feed people who eat that crap every day anyway than try to feed them off of my production, or you know my stash of biltong or whatever. So to me, prepping is is about first yes we want to make sure we can take care of ourselves, but then we have to start thinking about you know, are, are we going to have anybody show up? And do we really want to turn them away? Especially, you know, the 88-year-old the lady down the road who watched your kids for 20 years. Are you going to tell her, go home and starve? And, you know, unless you're heartless, the answer is probably no. And those foods ha are like your final backup because they last forever and they're cheap. But they're also a way to get through a short period of time when you know recovery of some sort's coming where you can help others. And, you know, you can have my corn nuts and I'll eat my biltong. Right, exactly, and and I think that's a good idea. But something else I had done based on, and I had to sell. I had to, took me several weeks of selling to get my husband on board with this, but we had bought a generator back in the late 1990s. We live, I would say we're ex-urban. We're not rural, but we're not suburban. We have about seven acres of ground and uh, there are a lot of properties around us that are very similar to that. And um, so we had the generator because we would occasionally have power outages. And um, But we didn't have, we had one five-gallon can of gasoline, and it was gasoline generator. So based on you and, and your interviews with Steve, um, I think his name is Steve. That's terrible. Harris. For, for, it's, yes, Harris from Michigan. Steve Harris. Um, I talked him into getting uh, enough cans so that we'd have 12 cans and do the numbering system. And he yep. um, then what really changed my husband, all this time he was kind of humoring me. I was kind of his little crazy one. And he would occasionally, he likes to tease me. So if we would be out with other people, he'd wait until there was a pause in the conversation and he'd lean over and he would say things like, you know, Paula thinks we're just a couple months from a Mad Max scenario. And I'd say, I do not. You know, but he, he thought that was hysterical. But what really changed him was Hurricane Sandy. And we are nowhere near the ocean um, it's a, at least a two-hour car drive and um, but we were without electricity for eight days and not only were we without electricity but we live in a wooded area and trees took down power lines either way you went out of our driveway on the road to the left or to the right the power lines were down, and there were trees across the road. So we were trapped. And 
Wasn't it helpful that we had a generator with about 60 gallons of gasoline <laughs> on hand? You know, it's the number one thing that I recommend people do that, that it takes some level of investment, right? Because the coffee canning is so easy and it blends right into your budget. You don't even feel it. But buying a generator and then starting to stock up gasoline, that does that's a cash outlay. But my God, if it is not the best prep we ever added to what we've done, I cannot tell you how many times that paid off for us. This year, we had a huge ice storm on Christmas. I was still in Arkansas. My son had flown in. Christmas Eve, the power goes off. and stays off for nine days. Wow. Right? The neighbors come by. Do you need anything? The Christmas tree was blinking. <laughs> you know, the TV was on and a giant steaming turkey was sitting in the middle of the, the table. And we're like, no, do you? And, and because of where we live, they were fairly well prepared as well. But I remember the guy said, well, they finally have the gas station open. I'm going to get some gasoline. And I looked in the back of his truck and he had two gas cans. And I know yeah, they're running yeah. like two houses up there, you know. And I'm like, you know what? Hold on. I guess so I gave him four gas cans and said, yeah, fill these up. And when he came back to give them to me, I said, no, that's for you. Because you don't, you, you clearly don't have enough gas to get through this with two households. Um, so that's your gas, and, and you know, and they didn't want to take it, but in the end they did because you know, t how long does this ten gallons go for two houses? Not and, long. And that one thing, man, is that. So you guys had it for eight days, and you guys had that generator humming, I guess, right through it. Yes, and well, we even talked about because we knew our gas supply wouldn't last long term. And we knew by this time, we knew from the news that it, we weren't going to have electricity for several days. So we were even talking about who did we know that we could contact on the other side of these trees <laughs> to meet us and take us to the gas station. But my uh, neighbor and my husband went down. The one tree they were able to cut up with their chainsaws and uh, roll the sections off the road, and they took like a canvas tow line and tied the electrical cable back off the road. So then we could get out the one one way. Okay. But but we had to make um, every other day we were going for gasoline. So the what happened after this is. This was just such an eye-opener for my husband. He, it's like someone who used to smoke cigarettes and stops, and they become quite zealous about not smoking. He has become very <laughs> zealous in this respect. Yeah. It's been Messiah wonderful. Syndrome. Messiah syndrome, right, where you can't stop talking about it. Well, we bought a second generator. He's. He likes the gas generator, so we got another gas generator because we have a, a very deep well and we have a well pump. And that was the one thing our our other generator wouldn't do. We couldn't run our well pump. And he configured everything so that certain things run off of one generator and certain things run off the other generator but they're divided in a way where the one generator runs the more optional things so that if you really needed to conserve gasoline, you could use the one generator. Um, he also, we, he did all the research on this because he's very mechanically minded. He can fix anything. And he, um, 
Vietnam vet, you know, so he, he knows what he, what he's doing. We actually bought and had, um, installed a 500 gallon gas tank. Oh, that's great. So we just figured, um, that gas prices will probably keep going up. And even if we, he, he uses, he likes to fish and he, he put a marine preservative, what they use down at the marinas for the gas mm-hmm. tanks down there, which is um, supposed to keep it for two years, although we will be using out of it and stuff. But yeah, That's the best way is put the preservative in, but draw from it and replenish it. Yeah, and this way we thought um, we are uh, – he also did other things um, – just a lot of little practical things that, um, like with our uh, computers and things, we have the UPSs on them, but he did some sort of programming so that if they don't have electricity in so many minutes, they will shut down in an orderly fashion rather than just have their juice cut off. Because we have our own mail server and usually these things are up. 24-7. And we also, my father had firearms, and I've shot firearms off and on since I was a child. My husband was conversant with firearms. And um, we had a few. And when uh, President Obama was elected the first time, I told Alex, I said, let's inventory all our ammunition and whatever we have, let's double it. <laughs> so I'm glad we did. Good call. <laughs> Investing in the third precious metal, copper jacketed yeah. lead, I approve. Very, very, very good. But um, since all this started, I um, my husband's had his concealed carry permit for years. I got my concealed carry permit. And um, based on an interview you did with Furfall, Fernando, yep. I think. Yep. I he was talking about the Glocks. And that's what I got as my concealed carry for myself. Was it probably Glock. the best anybody could do and as a guy that loves the 1911 platform, it's very hard for me to admit that, but it's <laughs> it is extremely reliable, it carries beautifully, it functions flawlessly. It's it's probably the best option in concealed carry is, is, a, is a good Glock of, of whatever format you particularly like. Well, but I wanted something easy to operate because I thought if I'm in a stress situation, I don't. And also, Alex wanted, my husband Alex wanted to make sure I had something that was easy to clean, that I could take sure. apart and reassemble without it being too complicated. And that's something else we started doing after the hurricane we have started having a once a once one day a month. We call it a practice day, and this is mainly for my benefit. Um, but we go through and we do. We don't do the same thing every month, but one month we'll say, "Okay, we're pretending the electricity is off," and then I'm the one that goes around and does the things necessary with the breaker panels. I start the generators. We do a practice with um, 
my going up to the gas tank and unlocking it, getting the pump to work, making sure I can get everything back the way it's supposed to be, because I am not very mechanically minded. Um, We have a practice day where we take out the ammunition and um, what goes into what thing. Because to me, for you and my husband, that's, kind of a silly thing that'd be like asking a woman is that a fork or a spoon in the kitchen but for me that was very confusing and it's helpful to um where this will just become second nature and if something bad happens i don't have to think do i have the 22 ammunition (laughs) yeah yeah and then we also do uh target practicing as well Awesome. And gun cleaning so that we are, you know, conversant with the weapons and things like that. So it's kind of a change in mindset. Yeah, definitely. Um, Do you guys have kids? I mean, have you influenced other people with this? Do, Do, like, all your friends or family now think you guys are, like, crazy preppers? Or do you have people that are kind of following suit? I mean, What's kind of that status of uh, the influence on others around you? We do not have children. And I would say that probably because I was not approaching this the best way, people tended to think I was a little crazy before I started listening to you. And you gave me a tip. I know it sounds like I'm like, oh, praise Jack, praise Jack. But you have been extremely helpful to me. And it was your thing of making, prepping, relating it to a personal disaster. And that's how I started talking to people. Um, A year before Hurricane Sandy, we had up here, we had a freak snowstorm in October, the last weekend in October, which the leaves were still on the trees, and people went without, I was at, without electricity for maybe 18 hours, but there were people in the Allentown and Northampton areas that went a week without electricity. So I started talking to people after that about how they should prepare for things like that. Yeah, not the zombies, not the end of the world, not the collapse of the dollar, just, hey, if the power goes off for a week, what are you going to do? Exactly. And I have friends who are on, they work and they have children and they're middle class and they have limited budgets. And I told them, I said, what I see happening financially is inflation has to come. And so start buying extra things now. Start like your system. Instead of buying one, buy two. Store up where over time you look and you say, oh, I have a three-month supply. And then magically, a few months later, oh, I have a six-month supply. And that you can, it's not really by magic, but it's, when you just do it as a routine, it's painless, really. Yeah, the copy stuff, you know. When you, if you're buying two generators, that's one thing. But if you're buying two cans of something you use, the, the money is so insignificant against the monthly total budget. And I know somebody out there is mad at me right now because they're thinking, you know, I'm just scraping by. I worry about having enough. And, I okay, I understand that. But I'm saying for a person that's got their financial house in order, 
buying you know a dozen extra uh, food items in a month is it's 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 one meal out if that depending on where you go and do you get a bottle of wine with dinner or not and you do that and it seems so insignificant but a, a year later all of a sudden there's a month of extra food at least sitting there and that was just budgeted in it's like i i'm sure you remember when you're working sometimes you get a raise and they say mm-hmm. we're giving you a two percent raise this year and it's more money but you don't notice it it's it's not it doesn't seem like it really makes a difference in your life well you know adding two percent on the spend side if you're not living at the knife's edge it's the same thing you don't feel it at all no and then you have it to draw on for sickness for a layoff for whatever happens how about convenience you know, yeah. it's 6.30, you decided, hey, the kids are coming over, I'm going to whip up this, I need eggs, you look in the refrigerator, there's no eggs, well, you know, I, I, I can tell you flat out, we've had that situation, and I pop open a can of Honeyville uh, egg powder, I mean, you, you know, I'm sure I'm going to be swimming in eggs by fall with the birds we have now, but that's been a case in the past, we just haven't had any fresh eggs, we don't eat a lot of the baked stuff because we're paleo, but the kid's coming, right? So he loves brownies, so she's going to make him brownies. Honey, there's no eggs. Now here, here's a can of eggs. You know, I remember the first time I did that to her, she goes, well, how do I use this? Read the back. Yeah. Because <laughs> I wanted, like you're talking about, though, but I wanted her to be able to do it, you know? Yeah. If I wasn't there for some reason for some period of time during a problem, I wanted her to be able to, you know, here's how a can opener works. Here's how you get it into it. And the instructions say the equivalent is X tablespoons to X water per egg. Just stick it in there and add a little more water and you're good. Yeah, and um now when when something when it, something bad may happen, thunderstorms or something that we may be without, we my husband and I just look at each other and say, this is going to give us a chance to see where we've got weaknesses in our preps and fix them. Just and that comes right from you. That's so funny you say that because I remember a power outage that we knew wasn't going to be long. We never even fired up the generator for it. And, uh, you know, we just sat and we listened to uh, just to bend our mind a little bit during it. We fired up the emergency radio and listened to Coast to Coast AM because it was late at night. Mm-hmm. And we just sat there and we made a we made a list. Okay, here's all the things we could be doing if this was a week-long blackout. But if it was three weeks, what, what where are we missing something? And we ended up with a list. And the next day we went shopping and crossed some – just like you're saying, we crossed some stuff off the list. We didn't do it all, but we went to the things that we thought would be the most critical and at the same time most affordable and, right. and least available, right? So that that's one of the three things we looked at. What's most affordable in relation to the, the, the functionality that would also become the least available the most rapidly – if this was, a, you know, so like one of the things we picked up was even though we have a big propane tank and a lot of the smaller ones for the grill, the little space heaters are great because you can heat one room with them. Well, we knew right away, okay, look, everybody that has a Mr. Buddy or whatever is going to go out and buy these things. So we added, you know, we went out and picked up, I think, 20 of those things. And and they're just there. And, and it's just a, another way that we have another prep now that, you know, that stuff lasts. Unless somebody steals it, it'll last until we use it. And it's nice to have options. That's something, when the hurricane happened, um, the first day my husband could get out, I think it was about two days, he went to the gas station, and there was at least an hour's line. Wow. 
And he just turned around, and, and we live, I mean, we're not in a any kind of a metropolitan area. Um, he turned around and came home and said, you know, we have enough gas. I could, we can wait until tomorrow. Well, wasn't it nice that we had that option? Sure, sure. That we could do that. Something that surprised me about myself during the hurricane thing was that I wanted comfort things. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I would tell people, don't just think, um, don't just, especially ladies, don't just think about, well, I have to have all the practical things. I have to meet the needs of all my family members. I think we need to think about ourselves, too. And what would make you feel good? Would it be having that special kind of cocoa you like that you can <laughs> eat in the microwave yeah. or, or whatever? Have it. Because this is it's a stressful time. Well, and it's it stores for there's cocoa is perfect. It stores forever. Mm-hmm. It tastes really good. If it's cold, it makes you feel better. Um, yeah, definitely. I think that luxury items, if you want to call them that, or I think your word is better than luxury. It's comfort, comfort items, so that you feel comfortable. You know, and it it, it is kind of funny when the you know neighbor or the sheriff comes through to check on people and. You're standing there with a steaming cup of cocoa at the door, going, "Yeah, we're we're good. We 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 got it taken care of." Um, and kind of the reaction that you get from from when that happens, and uh, yeah, cocoa I think is uh, you know that's something we're probably deficient on. We probably have a cocoa deficiency because um, if nothing else, it's a hell of a barter item. Yeah, and you can make it paleo. I make I use unsweetened cocoa. Okay. And I take. Um, a cup of hot water, and I take out two tablespoons of the hot water. And I use, make sure I get this right. It's terrible. I can't remember if I use one or two tablespoons of cocoa. I think it's one tablespoon of cocoa. And I use a quarter teaspoon of stevia. That's my sweetener of choice. Agreed. Which is an herb. Yep. And then I put in two tablespoons of, after it's heated, I put in two tablespoons of cream. Okay. So that gives it that creamy texture, but it's um, you know, no sugar- chemicals. It's not you, you're missing the Swiss Miss chemical. Yeah, it's sugar free. <laughs> I'm gonna have to try that. It's been a long time since I've had a cup of cocoa. You might uh, have that- to adjust it to your taste. You know, people yeah, like sure. things a little sweeter. Yeah, or you, actually, yeah. I might have to pull it down a little bit. I drink coffee every day with heavy cream and no no sugar, so yeah. oh, yeah. that's actually quite a bit of stevia. But that that's that's my sweetener of choice. If I'm going to use a, sh- a real sugar sweetener, it's honey, um, you know, and I don't do that a lot because it still is a sugar, but it's much better for you than you know what I consider the other crack, which is white cane sugar, um, yeah. <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. And then I, I have to look it up to remember how to make it, but. You can use cocoa powder to basically microwave a little miniature chocolate cake, and there's no reason that can't be done with an artificial sweet or not an artificial a a non sugar based sweetener like stevia, which is yeah, like zero calories. Good. And I've even found for some things a little bit of real sugar actually does kind of make them better. But if you you I think the average person would be amazed how much sugar you could cut out of your diet just by cutting back to a fifty fifty ratio. 
So something that might use a, a tablespoon of sugar, use, you know, a half a tablespoon equivalent, because not a half a tablespoon, but the equivalent of half a tablespoon of stevia to sugar, mm-hmm. and then stevia. And that'll help a little bit with some of the, there's a little bit of it, I think it has less aftertaste than things like Splenda and what have you, but there's a little bit of it there. But you could even go to a 25-75 with 75 of the sweetness coming from stevia. And that's, for the average American and the diets that we eat, it's it's tens of thousands of calories a year, minimum, that could come out and and not jack your blood sugar all over the place. No, you're right. And people, you know, part of prepping, I think, is being healthy like you've mentioned. I do, you know, exercise. I'm not any kind of a bodybuilder or anything, but I do lift weights and I do intense like sprinting and things a little bit to try to keep, um, especially with the lupus, to keep my joints in good condition. And I think um, that's important, too. And from the hurricane also, two other things. I had heard, um, I'm terrible with names, but Nurse Amy and the doctor. Dr. Bones. And I had gotten their book. Well, I actually, I have since then, I have purchased some um, fish mocks and things like that to have on hand. And we became more security-minded because when we were cut off from the the hurricane, if something, um, if someone had tried to do something negative to us, the police couldn't have gotten here. Uh, so we put in, um, they're called zone alarms. It's not, I haven't gotten cameras yet, but we're, we have one near the gas tank, one a little bit in from the the road where the driveway is, but where this will say zone one, zone two, zone three. Oh, the MERS stuff. Four. Yes. Yeah, that's great. It, it yes. is so simple to set up. Yeah, so this, if someone's approaching, we instantly know, okay, now, most of the time it's a deer <laughs> yeah. or yeah. a turkey. We have wild turkey out here. But it's nice to have that and to know that um, no one's going to sneak up on us. I got a funny story for you about that real quick. We had them set up uh, at our house in Arlington, and one place I put was the gate into the backyard. And I did it inside, not outside the gate, because I figured that it, it would be less likely the person would see the detector. They would, yeah. By the time they'd set it off, it was too late to, to realize it was there. Well, we had just gotten Max after I had set this up, our German Shepherd, and he would occasionally end up over by that gate, and I figured, well, he's trying to get out. So I would go out there to see if he was trying to get out, so that would mean I would open the door. So he figured out after about a week that if he wanted in the house to go over there and stand there for a second and then come back to the door. Because he knew that as soon as he went there, the door would open. Now, I'm sure he didn't know why. But he would go trip the alarm, so I ended up having to build like a concealed thing and hide it to keep it on the outside of the gate to detect for the gate because he had completely figured this thing out to where he would just set it off every time he wanted in the house. That is hysterical. Like he learned to read, ring an outside doorbell almost. Exactly. He knew. He didn't know why. He just knew if I go here, door will open. <laughs> I want in. 
going to go here. So then when it didn't work anymore, it took about a week for him to stop trying it. You, I'd look out the window of my office. I'd see him run over there, and he'd stand there, and he'd run back to the door, and he'd look at it. <laughs> and then he'd like, you know, you'd see like the German Shepherd thing with the head cock and everything, kind of like it's computing, it's not working. Yeah. Let me try it again. And he'd run over there. Yeah. He'd do it about three or four times, and he'd give up. But it took about a week for him to stop doing it altogether. Oh, uh, to figure out that whatever it was was no longer working magically, and he went back to barking to get in. But uh, that, that, those are great tips. And, I mean, all the stuff you're doing is really easy stuff. You guys aren't, you know, setting up trip wires and, you know, booby traps, and you're not, you know, outfitting the roof with a turret machine gun. or This is <laughs> no. basic stuff that anybody anywhere could do if they wanted to. And we did this, um, well, since about 2009. So in four years, it didn't happen all at once. And I think having a list and deciding what's the most important for your situation, and then when you see yourself able to cross off some of those things, you feel empowered and it helps you to keep doing it it's like that cliche about eating an elephant you know it's one bite at a time so it's uh and my husband has really gotten into it he i can't tell you how often he will come home with something that he has he purchased two or three of and I kind of give him the fish eye, like we didn't need more than one of those. And he just says to me, well, you know, one is none. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's great when, it, when the spouse turns the corner. I remember that there were times when I would, you know, Mountain House would go on sale. So I'd order a case of something and throw it in the closet and Dorothy would go, I think we have enough of that now. And the way that only a woman can say it, I can't yeah. even get it right, right? You know, there's a way a woman can say things that no man could ever pull off. And uh, you, you you read a lot more than the few words that were spoken. And now if we go to a store and just for basic grocery shopping or something like that, as we're about done with whatever we're doing, Darth will turn to me and go, there's nothing here for our preps. We should get one thing for our preps today. That's for awesome. You know, that's awesome. So that leads me to this question. You had to flip a husband, but you've been a woman for a lot longer than you've had a husband. You were in the point in time in your world where you would have thought this was a little off and you wouldn't have done it. You came to it on your own and eventually started doing it. Had your husband gone first, what would have been one or two things he could have said to you when you were still closed to have opened you to this being a good move? Um. I think if he had said, I'm doing this because I want to take care of you Ooh. and providing for our security and for your security and happiness is important to me. Staying away from the, the he-man aspect of it. And I think that could be very compelling for example, to a, a, a woman with children where I'm, I'm preparing, I'm taking care of you and the children. Because I think women have, this may sound sexist, but I, I, I think women and men are different in so more than just real. physical ways. And I think women have a, a real caretaking mindset frequently. 
you know, no generalization is always true. And I think if it's approached from that way, a caretaking, that's how I got one of my friends to start doing it for I, she, the preparing, you know, caring for your children and your family. And that, that struck a chord with her. I think the men of this audience that have been asking that question just got the golden freaking arrow for the quiver right there. And I think you could even take it a little further with, well, what do you think could go wrong? And I think the answer could just be, I could be driving home from work tomorrow and get hit by a gravel truck. And I wouldn't exactly. be here. And, and mm-hmm. life insurance will fix the financial aspects of that. But there's going to be this time period of adjustment during that. And any single thing that makes your life easier during that time would be welcome. And, and that's the most mundane thing that could go wrong, and it's pretty horrific. And I, I think that starts to break that, that normalcy bias because everybody knows that you could get killed in a car wreck. I mean, there's, there's no one yeah. that if you say, what are the odds are, you know, that you'll get killed in a car wreck? They'd say, I don't know, but it's at least possible. Yes, and, it is. And, and, and that gets you thinking about, well, what if some things – or I could just not be home – when the lights go out. So not only do I want to have the stuff in case the lights go out for a day or two, I want you to be able to use it, just like you guys are doing, where when you do the drill, you're the one that goes and does everything. I I want you to be able to do it because I could be stuck away from town on business. I could be stuck at the office because the blackout's citywide, and it's not the world ended or an EMP hit. It's just you know something went wrong and some retard somewhere shoved the wrong piece of equipment in like we had out in New Mexico and shuts down the grid two states away. I mean, this stuff happens, you know? So I think that, that whole, I want to take care of you. And I I kind of feel stupid right now, um, but I never quite put it that way in almost five years. Well, that's Um, because you're a man. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I do do think that's, that's helpful. And I think for the woman to do it, to be part of it, to be a team, to do this as a team if possible, where she's not, you just go about your what you're doing, honey, and I'm the he-man. I'm going to make all this stuff work. I, I this to, to most men, this will sound really stupid, but as a very non-mechanically inclined person, I found it very gratifying to be able to start both the generators, to know I had hooked everything up correctly. I hadn't electrocuted myself, which I know was not likely. Nothing (laughs) had blown up. Everything was functioning. (laughs) Well, it's empowering, isn't it? It's like I can do this. It is. Yes. So, I mean, we're over an hour now, so I'm just wondering, do you have any any final thoughts for anybody out there in particular? I mean, you could be for women, for men, for everybody, for people that are in a little bit of a a more mature age bracket. I mean, any group of people that you'd want to give some advice to today, uh, the floor is yours as we close up. Well, I guess I would say I think everyone, no matter what their age, can do some prepping, and no one is going to be able to do everything. So choose those things that will help you personally and that I that I think you would feel good about. Better to do some things than to think it's just too big and not to do anything. I and, think that's... Well, Go ahead. And just, I don't know, my... 
if you have this kind of relationship with your spouse, I never thought this was going to be possible, but sometimes we'll kind of do a fantasy thing, not this is all verbal. I got you. Where we'll just, I'll say, let's play a game. Let's play a what-if game. And we just kind of strategize and we talk things through in a fun way. It's just fun. And it may only last the conversation 10 minutes. Like, well, what if the house next door caught on fire? What if this? What if Mm. that? And just kind of playing a game of how would we handle this now that we're trying to be self-sufficient. And for us, it's fun. Now, some men may just roll their eyes and think that's crazy, but I was shocked that he was willing to do it, but he was. <laughs> sure, sure, that makes perfect sense. Well, because I actually think that that triggers a lot in the male mind because one of the biggest problems we run into as men with our, our females in our lives is you guys come to us with a problem and we start trying to fix it. And there's times when women don't want the problem fixed. They just want you to shut up and listen. Um, yeah. So that game right there is it plays right into the male's side of the court where it's okay. Well, this is wrong. How would you fix it? Because that's what we do. That's why we like to work on cars and motorcycles and stuff like that because we like to to fix things, you know. And so I think that's a great tip as well. Well, and um, when this interview's over, I'd like to mention one other thing to you, but not for on the okay. air. Okay. I don't well, know if I should just do it now. No, not if you don't want it on the air. We'll uh, we'll okay. wrap and, and then I'll I'll shut the recorder. But yeah, that's uh, that's all great stuff. And you know, I know that you were a little bit apprehensive about being on the air today. You're not a, a, a blogger with your own podcast or anything like that, like some of the other guests. So, uh, but this was a fabulous interview, and I think that everybody that listened has probably gained a lot from it. Uh, with how to prep in their own lives, how to not feel, feel overwhelmed, how to not feel that they're not doing enough, how to talk to others about it, and, and to realize that it's just everyday people that are out there waking up to these realities. And for all of that, uh, Paula, thank you for being with us today on the show. Well, thanks for having just just an average Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Paula Radkowski, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.